And I think that's ingrained in all of us in the hospitality is we want to take care of the room attendants and the front desk kids and the servers and the chefs and the cooks and make sure, because that's your main role, right? As a GM, your role is to provide for them by getting business into your hotel to keep them working so they can take care of their families. And so to me, being able to do that and having that message right now is key and just being there as a support mechanism and a cheerleader and whatever is needed that you could do. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor. Today, I am very excited to have the founder of Leeds Hospitality Group, Brian Proctor, with us. Brian, I appreciate you joining the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we will jump in like we always do and learn about what was your first job in hospitality? What was it that got you hooked in this beautiful industry? Yeah, I think if you go back before the true hospitality jobs, I always worked with the public, whether it was at a grocery store Mm -hmm. or, you know, I was a pizza cook at a train station. So dealing with all the commuters coming and going, but, and that kind of got me into the hospitality mindset. And so I'm born and raised in Montreal. Oh, nice. So I went to a very small hospitality school there Mm -hmm. and uh, graduated from that on like a Tuesday, did my final exam. And then luckily, thanks to a a young guy who was a year ahead of me before, he hooked me up with the Westin in Calgary, Alberta. And he was working there as a night auditor. So he got me a job through a gentleman by the name of Wayne Boddington, actually, who went on to great things with Starwood, which comes later as well. But Wayne was, I think he was the rooms division manager. So we did a phone interview and he hired me as a night auditor. And so two days after taking the final exam, jumped in a plane and flew to Calgary and started like two days later. It was really fast just getting from school right to that first job because I was never a good student, nor did I really like being in school. So (laughs) I did the three years. I guess the American version would be an associate's degree, three-year program in two years. So I could get the heck out of there and start working full time. And so just jumped in as a night auditor. And which was that? What hotel was that in? That was at the West End in Calgary. The West End in Calgary. Yeah. 
So I always see, you know, I was looking at your background. Uh, you have four seasons on there, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's funny. I applied to four seasons twice. Once, the first time, they're like, come back with more experience. And then the second time, they said, this place is too small for you, Steve. You're, you're going <laughs> to get bored. But I always wanted that experience. What was it like for you being there? Well, with four seasons, you, you skip ahead. I was the director of rooms at the Sheraton in Stanford, Connecticut. And one of the other reasons I got in the hospitality field was I always knew I wanted to get out of Canada and down here to the States. Right. So I thought the hotel business was a great way to do that because they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I got a call just out of the blue when I was down here in Stanford and wanting to know if I'd be interested in the rooms division manager's position at the Four Seasons and on the park, which... If you know the history of Four Seasons, that's Izzy's or Mr. Sharp's first hotel. I mean, he built that hotel. And as a kid from Canada, as much as I wanted to be here in the States, Four Seasons comes a call and you just say, sure, where do you want me? And I'll be there. So joined Four Seasons to get that luxury experience because prior to that, all my experience had been with Westin and Sheraton products, which are phenomenal hotels. Yes. But, you know, again, Four Seasons is the creme de la creme. So being offered a position there, I just said, absolutely. I I literally had just gotten married. My wife actually ended up having to join me up in Canada about a month later. But yeah, the experience with Four Seasons was spectacular. And the emphasis on service, the emphasis on taking care of the guests and taking care of each other and just the history behind it all. And back then, this was probably before you were born, but back then it was a much smaller company. And right. in on the park was where all of the corporate office people entertained and they came by. John Sharp, Wolf Hengst, all of them were there and you would see them on a day-to-day basis. So the exposure to the senior executives for you know a rooms division manager was huge. And so, you know, after two years there, the general manager at the time, Klaus Tenter, who was a longtime legend at Four Seasons, you know, just said, hey, where do you, where do, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be next? And I said, well, I'd like to get back down to the States. Right. And um, he said, well, we have a rooms division manager's position open at the Four Seasons at Beverly Hills. You know, dumb kid from Canada. I hear Beverly Hills. I call, I call my wife. I said, are you in for California? She said, absolutely. And so I said to Klaus, I said, well, when do I go down and interview? He said, this is Four Seasons. We don't do that. If you're good enough at one Four Seasons, you're good enough for any Four Seasons. You'll just go. And and that was the one of the great things because they just fully believed and the GMs all had great faith that if they were recommending you, that the incoming person was getting a good person. So it was just it was spectacular. And then, you know, the years in Beverly Hills was, that was craziness. It's amazing to hear that part. I didn't, I wasn't aware, right? Like usually it's it's like that in some hotel groups, but I always see the Four Seasons resume, right? Whenever I was interviewing somebody, they're there 15, 20 years. Oh, yeah. And they visit all the hotels. And mm-hmm. Well, think about it. You're arguably in the best hotel mm-hmm. in the best market, you know, and again, I'm long removed from Four Seasons, yes. um, but back then, and I'm sure it's similar to this, but back then, I mean, you had so much staff because your rev par was high, your occupancy was high. I mean, the hotels were just very successful. So you had a lot of money to take care of the guests and you were charging them appropriately. So you always had just a a well-defined management team. To your point, a lot of the people were there 15, 20 years in a property. 
right? Let alone jumping to different hotels. You had people that were there for many years. So it just made working in the service industry like the good old days. You actually got time to spend time with the guests and your employees, and you were able to train and you were able to develop and mentor these, you know, the junior managers into these better roles. And because the company believed in that, you know, you had people staying there forever and ever. And that was always one of the questions I got was, why did you leave Four Seasons? But you, you need to move on sometimes. That's true. So let's talk about that. Perfect segue. You set it up easy for me. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> now uh, your first time GM role, was that be at the yeah. Sheraton? Is that where you jumped no, into the first time GM? My first true GM's role was at a little place in La Jolla, California called the Colonial Inn. So back to like, why do people leave Four Seasons? Right. For a guy like me who is somewhat impatient, at Four Seasons, you generally have to do two to three properties in the same role before you were promoted to the next role. And so I wanted to be a GM before the age of 30 or at the age of 30. And I could see that wasn't going to happen. So Interstate Hotels called me and offered me something at the Bellage in West Hollywood as a resident manager. And so that's what got me to leave Four Seasons. So fast forward about 18 months, this position at the Colonial Inn came open, 75 room, right down uh, Prospect Bay, right at the end. Everybody Beautiful. goes down there to yeah to see the seals and everything. But it's a 75-room independent inn. So that was the move down to San Diego area to get that job. And a 75-room hotel, as a GM, you're basically everything. You have a team of three or four people around you. You have the front desk, housekeeping, and your finance person. There we had a cute little restaurant. So we had the chef and stuff, but, but you don't have that infrastructure you have around a full service hotel. So the fun thing there was you got your hands in everything. That was one of two hotels that I ran as a GM where I felt I really stamped my view and philosophies on service and hotels on because you could do that. You right. didn't have to worry about the brand mandates and all the things that have to go along. You really kind of just develop things on your own. You didn't have a brand to stand with you on reservations. So you really had to work with the repeat clientele and making sure they were coming back. And so it was a little bit of a different thing. So again, it was one of the great things that I always tell young managers who I mentor that try not to say no to any experience that may not look like the typical path you think your career should go on. I always volunteered for every possible task force assignment. I got, I don't, I forgot how many times we moved. And I know that's not the norm these days, but back then I think we moved on average about every 18 months to two years until a certain time that I got within the corporate structure. So if you take it from 81 to 2001, I probably moved, you know, 10, 13 times, something like that. That's amazing. So did you have an agreement with your wife saying, look, this is what it's going to be? Truth be told, she was in the business. We actually met at the Sheraton Stanford. So she knew the hotel business and she's been phenomenal through all these years. We've been together since 89. And yeah, she took every move. You know, at the beginning, it was easy before we had the girls because wherever I went, like, so when we went from Stanford to Toronto, Sheraton just transferred her to the Sheraton Toronto. And then when Four Seasons transferred me to Beverly Hills, well, Sheraton just transferred her to the old Sheraton Plaza Lorena, which is now the Sheraton LAX. So 
that was good because Sheraton was always looking for strong sales managers and they got a free move <laughs> because Four That's Seasons awesome. was, you know, paying for the yeah. relocation. And then once the girls were were born, she just said, hey, whatever, wherever we got to go, we'll go and we'll just make it work. So she's been terrific. That's a great partner to have there. Yes, right. absolutely. So now you're at the end. When do you start transitioning into larger hotels? So from Colonial Inn, which was 75 rooms, then still with Interstate, I went to the same ownership group. They sold the Colonial Inn mm -hmm. and they had a place up in uh, San Luis Obispo near Pismo Beach. So I went there. That was 165 room independent. And then from there, Starwood came a calling right. and said, we have a position open in Tampa at the Sheraton Suites Tampa Airport. So I didn't get to the larger hotels until the next move with, with Starwood, which was, I got a call from my boss and he said, hey, listen, we're gonna try this dual concept thing in the same building. And we think you'd be the perfect guy to do this at one of the ones we wanna do this at. I don't know why he thought that, <laughs> but I wasn't gonna argue with him. So I said, hey, that sounds exciting. Yeah. So he said, okay, it's the Sheraton Indianapolis at Keystone Crossing. And we're going to make one tower Sheraton and one tower Weston. And we're going to do all of this stuff. And I said, great, well, give me a couple of minutes and I'll call you back. And he kind of said, what are you talking about? A couple of minutes, go home, talk to your wife. And I said, I don't need to talk to Rosa. She'll go wherever we go. But I said, I just don't know where Indianapolis is. <laughs> I said, I really got to place this on a map because, you know, again, dumb kid from Canada. I mean, the Midwest was not anywhere that I'd ever been. So he laughed. And so he said, just call me back tomorrow after you talk to Rosa. So we went up there and we tried that experiment in Indianapolis with converting a full, it was, you know, close to 600 room Sheraton into one tower as a Sheraton and one tower as a Weston. And, you know, it was great because it was a Starwood owned property. So we could experiment without an owner having to really take the hit on anything. It didn't work the way we had hoped, but I think we kind of got in our own way in doing that. So for example, the Weston Tower was much smaller, mm -hmm. but the Weston brand dictated that you had to have a restaurant. So now I'm running two restaurants for breakfast and dinner instead of one for the same amount of people. And so there were just some things that early on, you know, and it's one of those things we, I, I never looked at it as a failure. I looked at it as hey, we're learning as a company how to do this. And we just made some mistakes along the way as we were planning this. Right. And so eventually that came back to a full-blown just a Sheraton. But, you know, following that, what do you see now everywhere? You see dual branded buildings, whether they're new builds or whatever, with all the different brands, all the different levels. So again, it wasn't really a failure. I didn't see it as a failure. I just saw it as Starwood was learning how to do that. And it just didn't work perfectly I mean, there. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you do more of those yourself or were you involved? No, in that was, tools? that was the last one. I think they uh, saw that. No, the, the, <laughs> the other thing is throughout your career, again, like I said, I always tell people just take the chance on new things, right? I mean, I didn't know anything about dual branding or anything, but my boss says, Hey, we think you'd be good at it. We think you're the right guy. I went, you know, you think you want to move to Canada I move to Canada, whatever. And then I got a phone call saying, hey, we're starting this new team because Starwood is growing over the next 10 to 15 years, leaps and bounds. And we're putting together a team called New Builds and Transitions. And that's how I segued into the corporate world back in 2001, is that again, the same gentleman who said that he thought I'd be good up in the duels said, yep. hey, we think you'd be great as the director of 
new builds reporting into Dave Milas, who was the VP. Now, the running joke with me, who of people who know me, is I don't know the difference between a flathead and a Phillips screwdriver. <laughs> I, I don't try to pretend that I do. And so everybody got a good joke out of the fact that Proctor is going to be walking around construction sites and all that type of deal. But again, I took the leap of faith. Dave Milas was the leader of that team from the, the beginning. And I had worked with him before and knew him very well. And mm -hmm. he was by far one of the best leaders I've ever worked with. And so I knew that if Dave wanted me on the team, I was going. And by that time too, you've worked 15, 17, 18 years at the property level. Right. And it was probably the right time for me to jump into the corporate world and, and kind of get that aspect going. What was that transition like? You know, I've talked to people, I've never been at that level, right? So I've always been property level executive. Mm -hmm. What was that transition like when you got to the corporate world? Was it something that was completely different than you thought? Or like, oh, this isn't as bad, or this is the same? Or what well, was your first thoughts? You know, I think one of the, I, I never thought it was too hard segueing into the corporate world. What I did find interesting is you kind of have to check your ego at the door a little. Because as the general manager, with the exception of your regional VP or who, whatever the title is, visiting your hotel once a quarter or doing a budget review, right? you're basically the king or queen of your castle, right? Yes. And well, obviously you adhere to all the brand and all the company, yeah, all that. But at the end of the day, you're kind of the cat's meow as the GM. You're the one who's seen within the community that you're in, the business community that you're in. You're the face of that building. So when I moved into corporate, there are people working to control their own interests in their own discipline. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little interesting to see just the dynamics of learning how to work within a large international company where everybody had their own things they wanted to do. But luckily for me, it was a gentle segue because as the director, I didn't move back to Connecticut. I stayed in Indianapolis because basically I went to the airport every Monday morning at, you know, six o'clock in the morning. And I came home every Friday from the airport afternoon. Mm -hmm. And we were on the road because we were opening so many hotels, developing so many new hotels. We were developing a loft then, element then, and all of these hotels opening up. And so we were just our teams were on the road all the time. To be honest with you, I only came to Stanford at that time, White Plains. I only came to the White Plains office a couple, three times a year. So it was a little easier to segue in for the first five years as the director before moving up to the VP. But I can imagine jumping right into that, like moving and, and it can be a little uh, daunting for, for some people. Yeah. I, and you said it right. Cause I was going to ask you that about the general managers. Every general manager usually is type A. This is what I think. This is how it should go. So I've always been curious that jump from being in that senior GM role to now overseeing multiple. Yeah. Right. Well, it, yeah. And again, I think you're right. Every, all of us old GMs or any GM is an A type, but you know, you also realize very early on as a GM that even if you're good, mm -hmm. you're not, going to go anywhere unless you bring everybody with you and get them to, you know, 
buy into what you're trying to put the hotel into or however you're trying to position that property. So I'd been you know, a GM at what five, six hotels, seven hotels before I went into that. So right. I think that was the key as well. That's true. They could trust you. They knew that you knew what you were talking about there. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to think so. Right. I'd like to think so. They kept giving me these jobs. So, so Steve, I got to believe they believed in me somehow. So one that I was interested in was your, when you were area managing director. So you were overseeing multiple yeah. states. What kind of brands were you overseeing? Yeah, there's another thing, right? So now I'm, you know, just to backstep a little bit. Yeah, so ahead. I'm now vice president of new builds and transitions, right? For mm -hmm. North America. And about a year before I took the position of AMD, you could see that the economy was turning. We weren't signing the amount of deals we were getting and all that kind of stuff. Right. So we, I basically said to my boss, I said, listen, a year from now, I got you working me out of a job because there'll be nothing to do. So we, you know, again, this is working with Dave Miles and, and we put a plan together to actually take all the protocols, procedures, processes that the new builds team had done over the last 10 years and train out to the regional teams because we were only going to be doing one or two openings owned and managed openings a year and the regional teams could handle that based upon all the tools that we had developed for them. So again, I get the phone call, Hey, we've got this area managing directors position open based in uh, Dallas. And I said, great, I'm all in, never been one, but it'll be great overseeing. So I had, what did I have? I had Texas, Missouri, Kansas, otherwise known as I always call them the glamour states. And within that I had every brand that we had at Starwood other than the select serve. So I had Sheraton, Weston, La Meridian, St. Regis, W. I'm sure I missed a brand in there yeah, somewhere. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And what was fun about this job was, so I was based at the Weston Stonebriar in Frisco, Texas. And so we had everything from the, Sheraton had done these 150 room prototypes that they were trying to, oh, I had four points. That was the other brand. I had everything from 150 room Sheraton prototype at the Sheraton Houston West to the Sheraton Dallas, which was at that time, and it may still well be, the largest Sheraton at 1,800 and something rooms and everything in between, right? So you had the St. Regis in Houston, you had the W Dallas, you know, you had the Weston and the Sheraton complex in uh, Kansas City, the Crown Center complex. And you didn't really have any real resorts. Stonebriar was a semi-resort because it had a golf course, but I wouldn't say Frisco, Texas is a resort destination. It's a, it's a great place to live. Don't yeah. get me wrong and work, but you know, so we had everything in between. And so that was a lot of fun. And a lot of it, like the W Dallas I had opened, the Weston Houston Memorial I had opened, in the new builds team. So a lot of those I had known from inception with the developers and now you were overseeing That's really you know, cool. and, and working with the team. And we were very fortunate that when you were an AMD, we had an HR, sales and marketing, finance and a revenue management leader. And we kind of traveled as a pack. We weren't all in based in Dallas. One was based in Houston, and but we were able to really you were basically running, it was funny because my revenues were a little north of 580 million in revenue that we were overseeing. So you, you're almost basically, for lack of a better term, running your own little company. Right. And so Starwood was great in those days and because we had regional teams based upon that. So you always had the same people. So you had that consistency of delivery. You had the consistency of philosophy. And, you know, we weren't all traveling together all the time. We always kind of knew where we all were, mm -hmm. but we all knew everybody 
at the properties. And that was key that you didn't have that changing of the guard, so to speak. So that was a lot of fun, but it took a little while to learn how do you really manage your time, right? Because every right. owner, did, he, did I even have an owned asset? I don't even think I had an owned asset. So these were all third-party owners. And each one, obviously, their asset is the most important to them. So to them. that has to be, yeah, exactly. And how much time do you spend on a four points in West Houston versus an 1800 room Sheraton that's driving hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and all that kind of stuff. So just learning how to use that time, you know, time management is the key, managing through priorities. And then really most importantly, you, I thought I had learned this as a GM of letting people do their jobs. Mm -hmm. But man, when you've got, you know, uh, I had a low of 14 hotels and a high of 18 at any one time throughout the, the years. You really have to trust your general managers at that point and trust your area team and agree on where we're going and how we're going to get there and then let them do it. Because otherwise you hear of these micromanagers and everything, and that, that just, that doesn't draw success out of people. So that was a key learning there. So going back to the owners, which I've always wondered, is how much direct access does an owner have to you or to the company to say, hey, I don't like what's happening here? Were they heavily involved? Or do you set up walls like you can call me at these times or I'll get back now, to you? I, I have a major fault in that I make myself too available um, mm -hmm. or I made myself too available. I've always been one of those people who don't sleep. Yep. So I get by on four hours a day, no problem. Mm -hmm. And I, I made it very clear to the owners that I was there to help them make their asset successful. The only thing I would ask, and this was always very important, was for major things. And, and you know, what's major, but you kind of learn through each other what a major event is. Come to me versus going directly to the GM or directly to, you can go to the GM, but don't go to that, you know, front office manager or rooms division manager or whatever. Please bring the stuff through me and then we'll, for the major things and that type of right. stuff. But if you think about it, 18 properties, each owner, you have to have a monthly meeting, right? 90% right. of them wanted a monthly review. So again, back to that time management is really getting things on the calendar for, Hey, the W Dallas wants to meet every second Tuesday or whatever. And then don't forget the owners have the asset managers as all asset managers have to do is they have to provide value to the owner. So it's actually more fun dealing directly with the owner right. than it was with some of the asset managers. Now I was blessed with a lot of really good asset managers, but there were also some shall remain nameless, <laughs> that that actually, I think, made things worse from their involvement because I don't think they were in line with, again, what the property could do, should do, what the brand could do, and then even sometimes what the ownership was really looking for because, again, some of them, depending on the asset manager, was looking to, again, create value in the eyes of the owner. So if that meant some short-term gains, right. that so might hurt you long-term. Yeah. And you have to look at all of that. But so just balancing all of that was to me a blast. No two days were the same. I get, I think like you'll admit in this business, no matter what level you're at, yeah. no two days are ever the same. You may be doing the same things, but with different people, which yes. makes that different. So, you know, just embracing that. And, and I've seen guys and gals who will just dread dealing with an owner. And it's like, we're not curing cancer here, guys. We're trying to put heads in beds and make some money as we're going along. I've always been a big component of you got to have fun while you're doing it. You got to enjoy it while you're doing it because 
Otherwise, life, if anything's shown us in the last two years, life is too short right. not to enjoy what you do and have fun with it. So I thought it was kind of cool. And again, you know, every time I, I was thrown into a new role, you kind of just embrace the role and just take advantage of that. And I met some amazing, you know, owners, you're dealing with high net worth individuals, you're dealing with major corporations. Sometimes you're dealing, you know, the Stonebriar property, uh, there's a Sheraton and a Weston as a part of the complex. The two gentlemen that owned it at the time were two of the nicest guys, but they were just two guys who had been there and had bought the land and had built the hotels and kind of created this and loved Weston and, and everything. And they were just a blast to deal with because their view on things was totally different than say, you know, the corporate owner of a large Sheraton or a large Weston. And you had family run companies owning these buildings, working for Hallmark in Kansas City with the Sheraton and the, the Hyatt that we took over and converted to the, the to, or the Weston and converted the Hyatt to the Sheraton. Working with the Hall family was outstanding. You know, they, I had no oh, idea yeah. they owned one. <laughs> yeah, they own. Well, it's Kansas, right? So it's Kansas yeah. City. So they Hall, the Hall family own. You know, that's home of Hallmark, and they're an amazing family in that community. And they had had the Weston and the Hyatt long term, and they were great to work with because they really had a long term vision of things. And so we had a great GM there, Steve Shallot, who just managed those two hotels so wonderfully well and entrenched it in the community and just did an amazing job. And, and with each ownership group, you just learned new things and you were always dealing with different people. And it was kind of like back in the new build today. I don't like to name too many names, but you know, one day you're dealing with Mr. Perot for the W Dallas and the victory thing there. And the next day, you know, you're dealing with a mom and pop owner of a smaller Sheraton or you're dealing with, this sounds weird, but Boral was in North America for Starwood. So opening up the St. Regis and Bora. One day you're in Dallas and the next day you're on a flight to Bora to work on that one. Life was it's good. a rough day, a rough day. Yeah. Now it's, it sounds exact, exciting and glamorous and yes, it was. Yeah. But at the same point, you know, the travel. Was it's rough, yeah. Travel, I mean, a lot of meetings. Yeah, and we were doing, you know, a lot of banquet I know, food. I know I was doing 225,000 miles a year in a plane back in the new builds team. But again, then you're developing the Sheraton Phoenix downtown convention center hotel when you're dealing with the city of Phoenix and all their, so you're just meeting all these amazing people. So other than a couple of days throughout my career, I don't think I worked mm -hmm. that much. I, yeah. I really never felt like I worked, whether it was, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's always fun. That's what I always like about hospitality right now. It's really challenging. Um, oh my God. It's, yeah. it's getting back to the fun, I think is what people are craving. Every hotel I visit, that's where they want to get back to. Right, yeah, right now I mean, it's surviving, but they want yeah, to get I'm back to having fun. Talking to some of my clients and, and just working with some of my clients on their properties and stuff, it's just like, oh my God, I thank God I'm old and I'm I'm past all of that. <laughs> I don't I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a, a GM and and I said, I don't know, it's just they'll be sold out on the weekend and can't get rooms, all the rooms clean until like Wednesday, just because there's no staff. Yeah. Prior to me leaving our executive team, we were cleaning hotel rooms every couple Saturdays, right? We just had to get it done. Yeah. Sold out on South Beach and we had 800 rooms and we needed to make it happen. Right? Oh, yeah. So that was it. Right? Yeah, kudos but, uh, kudos <laughs> to everybody remember. out there right now. That's what I say. All right. So I want to continue your story because I, I want to be conscious of your time here. So 
you're in Starwood, you have these great positions, but then you start transitioning away from Starwood. Was this, why did that happen? Right, you were there well, for 18 years, and yeah, the Marriott portion, the Marriott sale. In? Yeah, listen, Marriott's a phenomenal company, but at that time, you know, I was with Starwood for 18 years, and I just kind of wanted to have a change. Right. So when Marriott bought us, I worked through Starwood till the end, the last day, and then. My only, not my only, but one of my regrets is that at the end of the Starwood term, I probably should have taken more time off. Looking back on it, a lot of people who didn't join Marriott did right. take some time off. Me being a dumb kid from Canada, hearing my dad's voices in my head saying, you got to work, you got to work, you got to work. My last day with Starwood was the 31st of December. And then my first day with Evolution Hospitality out in San Clemente was like January 3rd. Wow. And Fast. Yeah, I mean, just long enough for me to drive out there. And and I was lucky. John Murphy created Evolution Hospitality and just a phenomenal third-party management company. And I, John and I had met when we were both GMs in Florida. I was in uh, Tampa and he was up in Gainesville. And, you know, he went on to do great things at Evolution and, and others. But so we got to talking in November, December timeframe and so he offered me a position as a VP of ops there based out of San Clemente. And I, I just said, sure, why not? Now, in hindsight, in fairness to John, I probably should have said, you know, I'm going to take some time off and that kind of stuff because I was only with Evolution for, I want to say about 14 months. You know, and again, they're an amazing company and I love everybody there. And Will Lawford just got promoted to president. So congrats to him. And they've got some great properties and great people and a great culture. I mean, their culture is, I've never seen a culture in the hospitality world like theirs Wow! in terms of they've got these guiding uh, principles that they live by and they actually, they really do. They live every one of those. And that's all because John set the company up and did an amazing job. But about six to eight months into it, I remembered why I wasn't a big fan of working at a third-party management company because you're spending so much time bringing hotels in at the same time you're losing hotels. And you lose that ability to really mentor the general managers and the teams around you because of that constant change. So, you know, I made the hard decision there to say, maybe this isn't the best thing for me. And and then luckily down the road, um, an associate, Keith Kefton, I don't know if you've ever worked with Keith, Mm -mm. but he's with a company called Athos Hospitality. Yeah, he's a mentor, recruitment, placement, all that kind of stuff. Keith and I started talking on something else and lo and behold, he said, listen, I've got this really cool thing that you might be perfect for, which as you've heard through my story, just throws yeah, up my radar going, yeah, let's that. do it. Right. Yeah. So I said, what is it? He goes, well, there's this company called Bridge Street Global Hospitality and they're looking for a COO with a hotel background. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's great. What are they? And he said, well, they are a service department company that's trying to really blow up that model in the service department world. And so it's very similar to what you do in hospitality, but it is very different. But he said, I think you and the CEO would be a good team. And the CEO then was Sean Worker. And uh, so long story short, Mm -hmm. after several meetings and dinners and stuff, I left Evolution to join Bridge Street um, as their COO. And that was a blast because the company was headquartered in um, Reston, Virginia, mm-hmm. and we had offices in London and Singapore. So 
the American version of service departments isn't quite there yet, even to this day. Right. Sonder is trying, Sonder's probably the closest thing you have mm -hmm. to what you have over in Europe. In Europe, the service department business is just like the hotel business. I mean, we created two brands called Studio and Mode. Right. We opened up a mode in uh, Paris and we opened up a mode in Edinburgh. And over there, the apartment aspect of it, you actually have full buildings just of apartments that are operated as hotels. You don't have the silly minimum 30-day rules you have right. over here and all that kind of stuff. So over there, it's running like a normal hotel company. So for me, I had never worked internationally per se. So overseeing this company as the COO was a huge challenge and it was something new, but it was similar because it's still hospitality at the end of the day, mm -hmm. but you just operate a little differently. The margins are much different and how you sell is much different. And we were trying to develop a platform that would allow a much wider growth of the availability of bookings. And so that was another aspect that I had no clue on, and I probably still have no clue on, <laughs> but, you know, being involved in that for a bit, one of the greatest things about this job was I got to spend at least a week to 10 days in our London office every month. That's great. And I love London. And, you know, it was, we had an amazing team over there and they were doing great things. So it was always fun to go over there because like I said, we were developing these brands and we were opening these buildings and we were just trying to do different things. And we were expanding a little bit into Paris and into up into Edinburgh. And then, and then we had the Singapore arm. So it was a lot of fun. Wait, wait, I have a question just about that model. Were you master leasing buildings or did you own the buildings? How were you all doing it? We didn't own any buildings. Mm -hmm. So it was very similar as a management company, third party management company. Right. XYZ owned the building and we made the building like the Studio Paddington building at the Paddington train station there. You know, we managed the brand and managed the building on behalf of the owner. Come to think of it, we did own the Mode Paris, but the Mode Edinburgh was owned by someone else. So it was, we weren't franchising it. We were just managing it. And we were driving that direction, right? How do we get into the franchising aspect of this? Much like Sonder is doing as they manage. But, you know, again, over in Europe, that business has been around forever. And it's very commonplace there with all of the different companies. Cheval, for example, is an upscale luxury right. company over there. They have the buildings and, and they're phenomenal. So it was just an interesting, it was an interesting model up until the time COVID hit. Right. So now I'm involved in vacation rental as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got 45 single family homes across South Florida. So we can <laughs> sideline off that. I, mean, I had some questions on there because we're learning that as well. So it's fun for me to see that in that model. But so you're there. It sounds like you've been very entrepreneurial your whole journey. So, you know, you've been working for companies, but I've seen your opening places, you're managing multiple places, you love traveling and seeing new people. And now we've come to where you founded your company. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing now at Leeds Hospitality Group. Yeah, so Leeds came around because during COVID, we shut down Bridge Street, sold mm -hmm. it off. Right. And I'd always said I'd like to retire around that 60-year-old thing. So perfect time to retire, much to the chagrin of my wife, because she probably doesn't want me underfoot. So I said, <laughs> well, listen, I'll, what I'll do is I'll set up a consulting company. 
I said, I know a ton of people. I think I'm held in fairly high regard in some areas and fairly low regard in others probably, but you know, and I'll just kind of get into the consulting thing. So Leeds came together and the, the, it's called Leeds Hospitality Group, but in essence, as you and I have discussed, it's just me. And the, the name came about because my family is from Leeds over in England. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, growing up in Montreal, I grew up on a street in a town called Beaconsfield, which has a sister city in England, and they call it Beaconsfield there. But I grew up on a street called Leeds. So I had always said, if I ever started anything of my own, it's got to include the name Leeds. So Leeds Hospitality Group. And I just thought, you know, I'd do some consulting. I would do some task force even. I, I don't think too highly of myself, like if, you know, GM task forcing and all that kind of stuff, even though I hadn't been a GM for umpteen years. And then any project management and that type of thing. So, you know, when I rolled this thing out, it was during the pandemic. And all of these positions were becoming open and, and on LinkedIn, I'm a heavy user on LinkedIn. And yep. so I would like just, sh- hey, sharing this from my GM friends. Here's a position that's open. And a buddy called and said, you're an idiot. And I said, well, <laughs> that's long established, but why am I an idiot today? And so he said, with all your contacts, just add placement services to Leeds Hospitality. And you can do it at a fraction of what the big guys cost. And, you know, same thing. So I added that on there. And been able to place a couple, but that's really on the back burner. I'm not a big recruitment type person or a placement right. person, but if a friend's looking for something or if a mm-hmm. company I know is looking for somebody and I can marry them, great. But right. so what I've been able to do is kind of develop a little bit of a niche with leads doing the things that I really used to love, which is uh, new builds, openings, uh, transitions, and things of that nature. So I've been able to kind of develop this niche with uh, companies, helping them develop the protocols, procedures, all the forms, all the things you need to have in place to be able to bring hotels into your company as a third-party operator. One of the awesome. things, yeah. So one of the things you're finding now is no, no hotel company has staff, right? Right. So, so now they're, now these deals are coming alive and they're bringing companies or hotels into their company. And Susie might be handling this one and Jill might be handling that one and Steve might be handling that one. None of them are doing it the same way. Some work out okay, some aren't bad. So what I've been able to do on that front is be able to standardize everything so that number one, I can coordinate the whole thing for them. So there's some of my clients, I actually do a lot of the coordination planning and all that, but the other ones I develop it so that they can just hand it off after I train them on how to use it then they can just go and they don't need me anymore. It's kind of like working myself out of a job, but it allows them that flexibility. And then the other side of it is just helping with developing and building new hotels. We're developing a hotel in California for a a major tech company that's actually building a hotel on their own campus. That's awesome. Yeah, for their own people. So I'm guiding them through that process with the company that they've hired to manage that hotel as they continue to grow that aspect of them because Silicon Valley is continuing to grow mm-hmm. and staying at a Sheraton and you know Sunnyvale on a Tuesday night in the old days, it was $750 a night for a room that hadn't been renovated for you know 30 years. So the tech companies are starting to build their own. So that's kind of a little niche that I've fallen into. That's a fun um, one. Yeah. I mean, they're all fun. And the great thing about this is, as I said, when I launched Leeds is I just want to work with partners that we both have the same vision. We're going to have some fun. 
we don't take ourselves too seriously and kind of go that route. And, you know, I've been blessed so far in this first year and three, four months to have found some partners working with me that create the environment of fun and growth. And so it's, so it's been great. So it's been much more fun and much more rewarding for me than I had thought it would be. I thought it would be really boring being a quote unquote consultant yeah. type of thing out there, but it's been a blast so far. So, so far, so good. Well, that's excellent. So how can people find you now? So they're looking for advice. What's the best way to connect with you? I think the best way is through LinkedIn. I mean, you know, you learn things as you roll out your own company and, right. you know, everybody, you got to have a website. Well, nobody's ever going to look for Leeds Hospitality Group on a website. I have one. Yep. Anyone can go visit it. But the best way to reach out with me is through LinkedIn. I'm a heavy user of LinkedIn. That's where the majority of my clients came from from past connections. And mm -hmm. it's interesting on, on LinkedIn for last year, I did this thing called Tuesday Thanks. So every Tuesday, and this this all came from, if you remember when Tiger had the accident and he yes. rolled his car mm -hmm. and there was a young golfer interviewed and he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, it's a shame that we don't thank people while they're around, right? Not the Tiger died or anything, but right. that stuck with me. And then shortly right after that, Arnie Sorensen passed away. And I watched LinkedIn just flooded with thanks to Arnie because he had touched so many lives. And it dawned on me and said, you know what I'm going to do for the rest of 2021 is every Tuesday, mm -hmm. I'm going to thank someone who helped me along the way in my career. And so every Tuesday that. morning, yeah. yeah, I did this Tuesday thanks. Anybody who wants to see it can go on my LinkedIn and profile and, and they'll see the whole thing. So that started getting around anywhere from two to 5,000 views a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And people started reconnecting with me based upon that. That's and awesome. that drove some business for me. So it's been, it was funny to see how LinkedIn really can work as a marketing tool. Even when I wasn't thinking of it as a marketing tool with that Tuesday thanks thing, mm -hmm. that's actually how quite a few pieces of business came my way. Whether they panned out or not is irrelevant. But it was the fact that, hey, Proctor's still alive. He's out there doing something. This is kind of yeah. cool. Let's see if he'll help us here or that type of thing. So I found that LinkedIn has been, you know, and I'm not getting paid by LinkedIn when I say yeah. all this, but I just find that that's been a tremendous source for someone starting out on their own. I agree. Trying to get the awareness. And that's how I was able to start, right? Because I was, I just like sharing and I like helping. I was starting putting out tips and advice mm -hmm. and people started to reach out to me. It's like, Hey, could you help us? I know you're working, but we have this challenge. Can you offer a solution? And then one guy offered to pay me. I was like, it clicked then. <laughs> and I was like, hold on, you know, we can figure this out. And yeah. I give all the things to LinkedIn. So we can make this a little LinkedIn commercial. We'll tag them when we yeah, post we'll tag this them. Exactly. and make sure they know how much they've helped each of us get there. But to kind of wrap this, I wanted to ask you, we talked about it a couple of times. It's ultra challenging out there right now, especially for the people working on property. If you were still overseeing your 18 hotels, what would be the message you'd be giving to your GMs to kind of stay the course? What would you be telling them to kind of get through? Yeah, I, th I think it's just, I don't know if I'd be telling them anything more so than just trying to figure out how to provide them with as much support as possible, because you have to do business differently. You have to work differently. Right. I, I hate to use the work smarter, not harder, but you know, you have to look at things differently and really providing the support mechanism between the GM and the owner or that asset manager and making sure that we're all on the same page as to understanding what everybody is going through. And I think right. for the most part, people are probably doing that, mm -hmm. but that would be the big thing is because if the owner understands 
what the true limits or the limitations or the capabilities of that property is during this time period, then that's the key. And then figuring out how to take care of the people. One of the things I'm most proud of in my whole career is when we took new builds and transitions from a team of 36 people down to none, mm -hmm. only lost one person, meaning we found jobs for everybody else on the team somewhere else within Starwood if they wanted one. A couple left on their own and went to other companies, but right. I only really had one individual that I couldn't provide a job for. So I felt very proud of taking care of the people that way. And I think that's ingrained in all of us in the hospitalities. We want to take care of the room attendants and the front desk kids and the servers and the chefs and the cooks and make sure, because that's your main role, right? As a GM, your role is to provide for them by getting business into your hotel to keep them working so they can take care of their families. And so to me, being able to do that and having that message right now is key and just being there as a support mechanism and a cheerleader and whatever is needed that you could do. I love it. I think that's a great message to, to finish on is really just supporting everyone that's out there, continuing to get through. And for the people who are traveling, I try to make sure they know, because they're not like you and I who oh, yeah. worked in hotels. It's just patience, care, oh, have some yeah. empathy for the people that are serving you. And I think you agree on that too. So it's- Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, Brian. I truly enjoyed hearing your journey. Again, if anyone wants to connect with Brian, LinkedIn is the place to connect with him. I can tell you it's been great connecting with him on there. That's how we were able to talk today. And he provides a lot of great information. So, Brian, any last words for anyone listening? No, just, uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing out there. I mean, keep a smile on your face and times will get better. And again, Steve, I can't thank you enough for reaching out and and uh, getting this hooked up. And it's been a great time. A lot of fun. All right. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you.